Welcome to Brain Core, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I'm Tolu Faromika, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Christina Valcanis. So we are now in November, which means we're focused on cognitive psychology. And that being said, we are also joined by Dr. Samantha Deffler, who is an assistant professor at York College at Pennsylvania. Her research interests include autobiographical memory, self and identity, and memory errors. So I find this especially cool because my, my main interest is memory and memory loss. But yeah, Samantha, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. The weather here is great, so it's, awesome. a, it's a nice day out. Yeah, so I know um, this episode will be released at a later date, but the election results were piling in last night and also today. How's the atmosphere in Pennsylvania? Um, so I teach in Pennsylvania but live in Maryland. So Maryland's results have been here already. Pennsylvania, they're still counting. And I think anyone who isn't living under a rock is uh, Mm -hmm. waiting with bated breath for them to just tell us who the president is. But yeah, I'm trying to be patient and not look at the news because with my understanding of survey methodology and statistics, it doesn't matter if 10% of the votes are in and somebody's up by four points. Let's wait until it's all in. So, Right. Mm. Yeah, I woke up this morning and I went back to the live stream to see what had happened. Um, but yeah, I hope this can act as a break from focusing on that. I know it's a break for me. Yeah, it's been a nice break. Mm. So like I said, memory is what I'm interested in. So I wanted to start today by just asking how the journey was to memory research for you. Was it a straight path? Um, It was a pretty straight path. So when I was in uh, when I was an undergraduate at Bucknell University, I worked with a researcher called who goes by Andrea Halpern and she does cognition um, and music. So she's very musical. She's very talented in that domain but my interest was always in memory and we kind of married those two interests together to study um, how well young adults and older adults could remember novel tunes that they had heard. Um, And I took that honors thesis as an undergraduate and kind of springboarded it into a, a graduate study at Duke university into autobiographical memory with David Rubin, who like literally wrote the first book on autobiographical memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but now as a professor at a, a teaching focused institution, my, my interests have morphed more so into the study of pedagogy and how we can teach our students in a way that helps them to best learn and remember that information. Um, and also a side focus in honoring students' cultures and identities and how that can impact the types of examples that we use when teaching about memory in our classrooms. That's really cool. Yeah, I find the path is always unique for different professors. So it's nice to hear a new one. So today we'll be delving into a paper of yours called All My Children, The Roles of Semantic Category and Phonetic Similarity in the Misnaming of Familiar Individuals. The paper came out in 2016, but is definitely still relevant today for everyone who has ever been misnamed or has misnamed someone. Would you be able to expand on this concept of misnaming others? How is it defined in the paper? Sure. So we were most interested in 
looking at how people make mistakes in naming very familiar individuals. So we call misnaming the use of the wrong name when referring to someone whose name you should know. And the way this came about, we were all sitting around in the lab and somehow or other, one of us admitted that our mom always called us our sibling's name or the dog's name. Uh, and we realized that all of us had experienced this. Like I had experienced it. The postdoc Kristen Ogle, who's a co-author on the paper, had also experienced it, as had Cassidy Fox, who was my research assistant at the time and is also an author. And then David Rubin, who is my graduate advisor, and he's the senior author on the paper. He had been called his brother's name by his parents. And then in our lab, he would call me the wrong name. He'd call me the name of our other grad student, Shana, and vice versa. Um, and instead of making it into kind of a joke, we decided to operationalize it and see if we could show that it's a widespread phenomenon. Right. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Um, my mom has called me both my brother's names before. So when I found the paper, I was like, this is very, very relatable. Right. And I mean, your mom knows who you are. And that's that's the cool part about the error. Um, it's not, sometimes people make naming mistakes because the name wasn't well encoded, wasn't well learned. But in this instance, um, it's a, it's a very well known name. It's a name that's used often and yet mistakes are still made, which allows us to delve a little bit deeper into how this information is organized and represented within the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to go into that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. There are some terms that are used in the paper that uh, might not be familiar to those who are listening. So when you say something is phonetically similar, what does this mean? It means sound. So um, the name Rob and the name Bob, they would be phonetically similar. So phonology is the, the sounds of a language. Phonetic similarity just means it sounds similar. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've been friends with someone for 10 plus years and her name is Bolu and my name is Tolu. So we would get mixed up a lot. That would be partially because of the phonetic similarity, right? Right. So we were investigating whether these naming errors occur more often for names that sound the same, suggesting that phonetics or or the sounds is what's driving the error versus whether it would happen for names that don't sound similar at all. So my brother's name is Jesse. My name is Samantha. They don't sound similar at all. And yes, and yet my mom makes that mistake. Right. Okay. So our term of the episode or tote is semantic memory. Would you be able to expand on what that is and then maybe expand on what it means for things to be in the same semantic category? Sure. So this is actually a little bit of a can of worms, um, (laughs) which is great. So the traditional understanding of semantic memory requires you to contrast it with episodic memory. So Endel Tolving coined these terms and suggested that episodic memory is memory for which you have a time and a place, and semantic memory is memory without time and place, so something like a fact or knowledge. Uh, Without getting too much into the weeds, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. My colleague Sharda Umanath has a review paper with David Rubin on this phenomenon, and we've done some work looking um, looking at episodic memory 
and it gets more complicated, but the, the, the TLDR, the too long didn't read is that semantic information is, is knowledge. Um, when we're talking about semantic relatedness or semantic category, that would be the, the concept or category that you fall into. Um, so mom, dad, sister, brother, husband would all be in with, in the family domain, um, you could also talk about semantic category for other items in your life, like kitchen utensils or animals, cat, dog, bat, rat. Um, but basically it's the, the category or the concept that the person or the animal or the thing or the event would fall into. Cool. So like if with siblings, for instance, like you get misnamed, with your siblings for I have two sisters and one brother so could there be like a semantic category of sisters and brother and I get my name confused with my well I don't confuse it my mom confuses me with my sisters more often and she's never really called me my brother's name so do you think that maybe the role of semantics could tie into this yeah so um in that instance we might say that your mom is is grouping you and your sisters together more so than she would group you with your brother. Um, the kind of tricky thing with semantic memory and with semantic categorization is it's dependent upon the individual. So if um, if you have a really well-defined knowledge base, you're going to have more complex categorization, and it might be slightly different than someone else's knowledge base. So your mom is grouping you and your sisters together other moms or, or parents or guardians might be grouping all the siblings together. And some people even include the, the family pet in there as well. Cool. So this could kind of expose like everyone's individual semantic networks. Um, possibly. I wouldn't go so far as that, but you're right. It does hint at how closely tied together two individuals are. If their names are being switched, um, it suggests that they are are considered close members of the same category by that person. Also, I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm doing this at my kitchen table, and my cat has arrived, and she makes her <laughs> meowing, um, which is That's a nice fun. little segue. No one ever gets called the cat's name. Right. Yeah, it's, I saw that. I, uh, I've gotten some angry emails from team cat. Uh, it's not that you don't love your cat any more or less than your dog. It, it probably has something to do with how often we use our cats names versus our dog's names. Mm -hmm. Cats don't really respond to their name. Um, so you probably aren't using that as often and it's likely driving the lack of use of the cat's name and misnaming. That's interesting. Um, so now I guess since we're on results, so I know there were five different but very similar studies done. Were there recurring results between those? Yeah, so we conducted five studies. The first was just uh, a proof of concept or a demonstration of the phenomenon. So we asked people if they had been misnamed, and most of them said yes. Um, studies two and three, sorry, two, three, four, and five all then delved deeper into those incidents of misnaming. So they varied based upon the age of the population we targeted, as well as the types of questions we were asking. So either they were collected from undergraduates, which gives us a limited age range, 
or was collected through Amazon Mechanical Turk, which gives us people online from, in this case, all across the United States, who um, who can be any number of ages. And then the other thing that varied, we either asked people about times where they were misnamed or we asked them about times that they had committed the misnaming. Um, and, you know, it's across this group of studies, we found that if people were being misnamed, the name that was being used in lieu of the correct name was often the name of someone who was within the same semantic category. So family members were being call were calling you another family member's name. Your friend is calling you another friend's name. Uh, there was not a lot of mistakes across, um, sorry, between categories. So very rarely was mom calling her, her daughter um, mom's best friend's name, for example. Cool, yeah. So were there any surprising results, would you say? Um. Not, I mean, we had we had kind of a sense of the way this was going to go, just based upon what we knew about how knowledge tends to be stored. I did think that there was going to be a little bit more of a pop for the phonetic similarity, um, mm. but it really just didn't seem to appear. And then what I found most surprising was not really the result, but rather the reaction to this result about dogs and cats. Um, Honestly, it really, it surprised me. So this article was picked up by a couple of um, national news outlets and Mm. overwhelmingly, like people didn't care that mom was calling kids the wrong name. What they cared about was that they were being called the dog's name or they weren't being called the cat's name. Um, And so I think it was more surprising to me that people cared so much about this um, Mm. and got so angry with me. So hopefully team cat out there isn't too upset listening to your your podcast. Um, and the other thing that's been surprising to me, so I did this in 2016. I was a graduate student at Duke. Since then I've gotten, you know, my, my big kid job and I've actually had my son, uh, he's going to be, he just turned 10 months. And so I've started calling him my husband's name, Oh, um, which is always a mistake, but at least I know why. And so that's also been kind of interesting. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, just to pivot a little bit, I know the tip of the tongue phenomenon is mentioned in the paper, Mm -hmm. so I suffer from this probably every day, but the idea is that words we don't use that often are harder to recall, right? So that can happen, or it can sometimes even be a very common and well-used word. They're not Mm -hmm. quite sure the exact mechanism by which tip of the tongue occurs, but basically... There's a word or a phrase, a concept or a person that you know, and you know that you know it. You know that you have that knowledge in there, but for some reason, it's either blocked or some other piece of information is interfering and preventing you from being able to recall it. And then later on, either you know, minutes, hours, or days later, it resolves, and all of a sudden, it pops into your head, and you're like, oh, yes, it was, it was this thing, or I know this person from this movie. Um, so tip of the tongue is related. It's a failure of retrieval. It's just that instead of fluently producing an alternative, rather you get stuck and you can't get it out. Mm. Um, I 
remembered this also from a cognitive psychology class I took last year. Uh, and I know we mentioned proactive interference where like old information is kind of interfering with the new information and then retroactive interference where new information is interfering with old information. So that can also influence tip of the tongue phenomenon, right? Yeah. So basically what's doing the interfering designates it as pro or retroactive. But yes, that can be driving these tip of the tongue phenomenons. So I think what's important to remember when you, I tell my students this all the time, when you can't remember something, so you're sitting down to take an exam or you are talking with friends and you just can't remember, um, one of three things could have happened. Either you never learned it in the first place, so you're drawing a blank because you never encoded it, or you encoded it, you learned it, you stored it, but then it faded and you're not getting it back. Or you encoded and stored it, but you just can't access it. You're having a retrieval failure. And for tip of the tongue and for misnaming, it's a retrieval error. The information is there. It's stored, but you just can't access it. Um, and, you know, there are ways to strengthen the retrieval pathway to make it easier the next time. But it's a normal, everyday cognitive phenomenon that sometimes you've learned something and you just can't get the right combination of thoughts or cues to, to pull that information back out to, to use in your everyday life or environment that you find yourself in. Hmm. Yeah, I saw that too in the paper with the things like the uh, calling a bunny rabbit a runny babbit, I think it was. And Yeah, that's a neologism, yeah. Yeah. So when you like switch the, the syllables or whatever. Cool. Um, I wanted to pivot a bit. So going back to like the networks of semantics in the brain and stuff, I was kind of just speculating about this, about implicit biases while I was reading the article because we've done a couple episodes in the past mm -hmm. on that. Um, I was wondering on what your thoughts would be because of the role semantics plays on misnaming. Do you think that they could develop some sort of like test to for implicit biases using this for instance like if teachers mix up students do you think it could expose kind of how they're categorizing their students um i i think it could i would be a little wary to have something or you're thinking about like the iat yeah <laughs> yeah so the IIT is a is a tool that we use to try to uncover implicit biases and you could and i have thought about doing this have like very quick flashing pictures of someone to see how they're being misnamed. Um, and I, I think maybe what you're trying to get at is when professors maybe call students of color by the wrong name, like they're confusing them. Um, that could be driven in part by misnaming, um, by these students being categorized in similar ways. And so there is an error there. Um, but then we also get into the whole issue of cross race identification. So if we look at some of the, um, the literature and eyewitness testimony, we know that people have a harder time differentiating between individuals of a different race. Um, some of that is driven by expertise. So, 
yes, you could maybe come up with an implicit bias test here, um, but I'm not sure that that would give you as much information about someone's own implicit biases as some of the other already established um, measures out there. Yeah, that's certainly a tough thing to measure. Especially because it doesn't happen that often. So you would really have to, we know that when people are under a higher cognitive load, so people report when, when the individual is stressed out, it's more likely to happen. So you could do a high cognitive load task and then see if you can get people to misname. Um, but because they have to be highly familiar others, it would be pretty intensive on the researcher's part to like track down the pictures and get consent and, and, and do something like that. Hmm, exactly. Yeah. I feel like like the IAT, you could fall into the trap of actually detecting familiarity as opposed to uh, like a implicit bias. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's an interesting concept. Uh, I know you mentioned that you say that one of three things could have happened um, when you can't recall something. So. I wanted to also get your thoughts on this. Is it possible to not categorize someone at all? So, and like, would that influence misnaming them because like no attention has been paid to them mentally? So like you don't know someone at all? Like perhaps you met them, but like they weren't really that (laughs) memorable. So you didn't categorize them. I guess like that would influence how you interact with them another time because no information about them was necessarily encoded. I mean, I think that we now we're getting theoretical. This is going to be fun. Um, So uh, given what we know about the use of knowledge and categories, we really like as humans to figure out what we're looking at and use some existing prior knowledge to interpret the world around us. So even if you don't think you have categorized someone in meeting them, you have automatically generated a set of assumptions about them and placed them into some kind of box when you met them. Mm -hmm. Um, However, chances are if they really were not that memorable, you probably didn't learn their name in the first place. And so you're not misnaming them so much as you're either guessing or just completely forgetting their name. Okay. Yeah. Because misnaming had to be with a familiar person, right? Right. So it's misnaming. uh, We're looking at misnaming of familiar people. Oh yeah. On the paper, there was the um, differences between males and females self-reporting the experiencing this. Um, I just, Do you think it could be because of gender roles? Like my mom always makes the mistake calling, mixing up our names. And I've never really heard my dad do it, but my dad's never really the one trying to like get us to do stuff. He's not calling all the kids and being like, oh, guys, come, come do this. You do that. Um, So do you think maybe because of the more opportunities to make mistakes, that's why there's that uh, difference, dichotomy kind of? Yeah, so I think that could be one reason why this is happening. So if we think about traditional normative gender roles, um, mom is probably going to be more likely to be calling kids, telling them to do stuff, uh, and that can be driving this. But I, I think we also have to remember that 
because this is self-report, it is entirely possible that dad or grandpa or grandma is also doing it, but people just aren't remembering it when it comes time to report. So this is not um, an, an in vivo diary type study where people are writing this down right when it happens. This is people thinking back over their lives and providing us with the most memorable instances of this. Yeah. So it's possible mom just does it really often. And because she does it really often, kids remember being called the wrong name by mom. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was thinking about that too when I read the methods and how people had to recount like 10 instances of this happening. I was like, I don't even know if I can come up with <laughs> one exact moment, but I know that it's happened. Right. Yeah. So they had to give up to 10. They didn't, we didn't force them to give us 10. Cause I think we probably would have gotten some pretty crappy data if we forced people to do stuff. They would have just made it up. Yeah. Um, but you're right. This is a weakness of the study. It's, it's self-report, but um, it's the easiest way to answer this question. And as opposed to, and there's different methods of collecting things right when they happen, but they're all pretty time intensive and they require participants to really opt in. Um, and I had another thought and it just completely slipped my mind. It'll come back to me. Funny how that happens when we're talking about memory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope it comes back. Um, just to go back to that finding that the names of dogs are also used when talking to other family members, but not cats, mm -hmm. I guess to give peace to the lovers or owners of other pets. Do you think that this finding would apply to any other types of pets? Or do you think it's strictly going to be significant for dogs? So it's been a while since I've looked at this data. I think maybe we have a chart. I'm, I'm rifling through my papers because I'm just on the, the tail early end of millennials. So I really like my paper copies. Um, mm. I feel like we had a section in here that yeah, so so we we collected instances when they'd been called the pet's name. And then critically, we also asked them about their pets. Because if I tell you that everyone's getting called only the dog's name, your next question, if you're, if you're reading carefully, should be, but did they own more dogs? Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. didn't. Um, but there was, you know not a lot of other instances of being called names other than the dog. And if I recall correctly, most, there was probably an equal number of cats and dogs, if not more cats than dogs. Um, there were also some horses and some parakeets in there. Um, and there were a couple of times where someone was called, I think the horse's name, but only four non-dog names were used. And that's not solely driven by, ownership, but for some of these rarer pets, you know, if everybody owned a hamster, maybe somebody would be called the hamster's name, but I think they're just, they're more rare. Mm -hmm. um, the, the easiest comparison is dogs versus cats. People owned about the same number of those animals. Um, but overwhelmingly it's family members being called the dog's name. Yeah. I think it I think it's back to what you said earlier too. Like people aren't really calling their cat as much as their dog and your dog is trained and it knows all the things and you tell it what to do. So you use its name more often. Yeah. So you're frequently using it. And also there is a nice body of evidence that talks about how uniquely attached humans are to their dogs um, and how 
the nature of the dog may allow them to be, I'm going to get so many angry emails, better integrated, (laughs) better integrated into the family in, in a way that makes them seem more like a little furry kid and less like, you know, the thing that stalks around your house and eats the food. Um, I say, as I watch my cat in my kitchen, eating all the dry food. Yeah, people get passionate about it for sure. Yesterday I was teaching water aerobics and two of the uh, grandmothers there were fighting over how the dog is a member of a family and the one was saying, no, it's not. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, people get very, very attached to their pets. I mean, I do too. I'm a consummate animal lover, but I can also take a step back and look at the data and the, the data says that the dog's getting the dog's name's being used and the cat's name isn't. Yeah, it's not your fault. I was gonna say maybe it could also have something to do with the dog's name. Like I own a, a finch, and his name is Banana. But like I'm not gonna call Christina Banana or <laughs> Samantha Banana just because it's not a name that you would call like a living human being yeah actually that's a really interesting point and one that we didn't think to look at maybe we did I don't know I can't tell if I'm having a false memory or not but um you're right dogs if the dog's named a human name maybe it's more likely than if the dog's name is like broccoli or something (laughs) um but you know I'd have to go back and look and I'm not sure if we even have enough data points to make this comparison but I think you you may have a point that more human-like names for dogs could be driving this. Right. So I just want to go back real quick, because I know you mentioned that there are ways to strengthen the retrieval pathways. Do you have any tips for those who would like to misname less? Um, so... For this particular phenomenon, these are very well-learned names with very well-used and strengthened retrieval pathways. So I think I was alluding less to strengthening for names and more for other knowledge. But if you're trying to misname less, I would say the number one thing to do is slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, so so slow down with your naming and, and maybe you won't make a mistake. Uh, however, you know, life is such that when you really need something, you're going to shout for whomever you're trying to get. And in that instance, you may make a mistake. (laughs) True. But if we're talking more general strengthening of knowledge, um, I tell my students all the time, the best way to strengthen your memory is to quiz yourself. So if you're studying for an exam, you should be doing exam questions, not just rereading your notes. Uh, It's called the testing effect. Uh, And the other key is to space out your studying. So instead of cramming for however many hours you're going to cram for, take that same amount of time and spread it out. It's called um, the spacing effect. Hopefully people apply that to their midterms now. (laughs) I tell my students all the time and don't waste your time rewriting your notes. It's giant time suck and doesn't do anything good i actually Um, have a midterm in two hours like right after this well have you spaced out your studying yes okay (laughs) good job (laughs) no i definitely use like the testing and the spacing effect and findings 
Yeah. Uh, but yes, so we wanted to have a short and sweet episode today. Um, I feel like a lot of people would be able to relate to the subject of this paper. Samantha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some knowledge with us. Oh, you're welcome. It was a really great opportunity to talk to you. So now it's time for the email prompt. Have you ever been misnamed or were you the misnamer? How do the findings from this paper influence how you think of those occurrences? Let us know. Our email is thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at the Brain Corps Podcast and on Twitter at the Brain Corps Pod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or a comment um, that allows us to reach a wider audience. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you're having a great brain day.